Hello and welcome to yet another edition of Britainology. Uh, I'm Milo Edwards, I'm on day two of a two-day hangover and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Nate Bethay. Hello, lovely day to uh, not yet be hot and sweaty but then also getting rained on because it's sun- summer in the United Kingdom. <laughs> love it. <laughs> we love June in the UK, a time where it's definitely summer. It is actually really fucking hot in the office. Yeah. The weather sucks but it's like really hot also. And so we have uh, we have convened on this uh, strangely strangely weathered day uh, to talk about uh, a most august British institution because um, you know we've all I think all of our listeners are familiar with uh, Wall Street guys and Wall Street vibes something which has been discussed at length on the podcast but what about their their British counterparts uh, people in the esteemed financial district of the city of London. And uh, by by popular demand, at least among other hosts of the podcast, uh, we are joined by my brother, Matt. Good afternoon. Yeah. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> Who uh, has worked in finance in the UK and certainly very much in the city in the 90s. Um, just to talk about the vibes. The culture. Yeah. There was definitely a vibe. <laughs> well, that's what we are very glad to hear. Um, for listeners who may not be familiar with the concept of the city of London, as opposed to London. There is uh, a district in this kind of central east part of London called the city of London, which has historically always been a separate administrative zone, uh, which goes back to the era of William the Conqueror, because it was the only part of the city with high city walls. And so uh, the Norman army was unable to capture it. And so they sort of made a deal with the inhabitants of the city of London that they got this kind of quasi-autonomous status uh, in uh, kind of exchange for acknowledging him as the king um and so there's still this kind of funny like regulatory chicanery that goes on with the city of london it has its own special representative in parliament it's kind of it's like a sort of weird area like you'll notice it if you if you know london like when you cross the boundary into the city of london there'll be all these like things marking the boundary like you're now entering the city of london then there's kind of a different aesthetic when you're inside that zone there's all these little uh, like kind of uh what would you call them like bollards uh, with the kind of city of London crest on them and stuff. It's like a little quirk. And that is where all of, or at least the majority of uh, London's financial centre is based there and to some extent in Canary Wharf, which is a newer thing built out in the old Docklands. Um, yeah, we don't talk about that one. No, we don't. Um, but uh, yeah, so a lot of times people will refer to working in the city, by which they mean specifically city, capital C, the financial services industry, more or less. Sometimes law. Occasionally, there's quite a lot of law stuff in the city as well, but it's primarily a kind of financial. Yeah, there's a similar vibe in New York with working in the city or going to the city, meaning the island of Manhattan, but it doesn't necessarily denote what job you've got. Mm. It just means like you're not in the outer boroughs, you're in the on the island of Manhattan. But I've noticed it here where people will talk about like city jobs or things like that, capital C city job, and that seems to imply like you were saying, like finance, you know, uh, yeah. investment or, or or some sort of related field. Yeah, sometimes consulting or law kind of gets lumped in with it. The the kind of the industries that largely service the financial services, at least in this country anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that kind of covers the basics of the city. I think like much like Wall Street, there have been some big cultural sea changes in the way these things operate in the last 20 years. And I think that the image that people have of the city, much like the image people have of Wall Street, is probably very governed by a kind of like 
eighties and nineties uh, idea of how things operate. So I thought it would be fun to like. I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to go too Riley on this episode. I don't want this to be like a drudge through uh, sure. technical history of like financial services and regulation in Britain. What we want to get at here? <laughs> you got the wrong guy for yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> what we're what we're looking to get at here is. Uh, what it was like. Um, I think a good place to start is probably with uh, the people involved. So I, there's there's like a strong, my understanding of it is there's a big divide in people who work in, let's say, kind of banks, brokerages and so on between kind of what are traditionally more like highfalutin graduate jobs in the city and what are more traditionally kind of, uh, I don't know, your, your wide boy geezer jobs in the city. Yeah, the, the, the bankers were, were the graduates. Mm. In essence, and the brokers were the were the oiks, <laughs> were the you know we we were the we were the Barrow boys, right? We were the mm. we were the guys, but you know we we were an essential cog cog in the wheel, if you like back then. Mm. Um, I suppose it was it's changed a lot since then. I mean, the nineties was was really was the was the golden era for broking, mm. if you like. It was before uh, electronic platforms. It was before algorithmic trading. It was before all that stuff. So voice broking was a real essential component of what went on this city back then. And there were some characters. There is a similar kind of divide, but it's going away in the US where you've Mm -hmm. got, yeah, like you're describing guys who went to, you know, Wharton school of business are the actual investment decision makers. And the guys who until recently had, you know, 80 different phone lines connected to this thing that they could then, you know, pick on a relay, which one they wanted to call. Those Mm. guys often were way more working class, or at least they'd gone to school. They went to school like Hofstra or something like that, like a a university that wasn't as elite, Mm. but like those guys had to be how do you describe it? Combative as hell all the time. And it's a very mm. different culture between like them and the guys who wear vests and buy you know $25 salads every day for lunch and do triathlons and stuff like that, which mm. is a type. Uh, but that is going away. It's getting kind of blurred now. Whereas you could definitely tell the people who'd been in the business a long time in the US, like yeah. it was either one or the other and there was not a lot of mixture in between. Yeah, because there's a definite like... I mean, I know plenty of people who work in the city doing uh, kind of like... A- M&A investment banking style stuff where basically all you do all day long is make PowerPoints. Yes. Um, and uh, you will spend 16 hours in the office making PowerPoints. Um, but I think that, and then there's a big divide between that and like, yeah, broking or trading, I think is another profession, which is slightly more. Um, yeah. I mean, if you look at, uh, I mean, now it's all about private equity, hedge funds, these mm-hmm. type of guys, right? And if you, if you look at a private equity fund, in essence, it's a box ticking exercise. Okay, mm. you're going to go with your you're going to go with your presentation, and they're going to they're going to compare your presentation against their little box tick. Mm-hmm. And if you don't tick every single box on their little list, they're not going to fund your project. There's no entrepreneurial no entrepreneurism in it at all. Mostly they're accountants, <clears throat> from what I can see. The broken business was completely different. Mm. You just had two lights, and basically the only two words you needed to know was mine and yours, followed by a number. Mm-hmm. Which under pressure was quite difficult, <laughs> actually. Believe it or not. Okay, so talk us through broking as a business then. Well, in essence, you had a, you know, you had a desk back in those days. You had an orange light on the left and a green light on the right. The orange light was bid. The green light was your offer where you sold. And typically, you'd have a bank of ten clients, which were all banks. So back in those days, you had banks like Manufacturers Hanover Trust. Chemical Bank, Bankers Trust, Merrill Lynch, 
um, Charterhouse, Hill Samuel, Coots, all banks that you don't ever hear anymore yeah. now because they've all been amalgamated into Royal Bank of Scotland. Yeah. Probably five of them are J.P. Morgan. Yeah, Chemical mm. Bank is kind of taking me back because that's like an old-timer New York term now because people it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they, <laughs> Sounds Chemical like a bank, dumpstep producer. <laughs> Chemical Bank were, merged with Manhattan and then they merged with Chase and then J.P. Morgan merged with Chase. Yeah, with Chase, yeah. Exactly. Bankers mm. Trust was bought by Deutsche. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. In 98. Bankers Trust were probably the biggest bank in foreign exchange in the 90s. Got it, okay. They were huge. So in those days, like contrasting it with the culture now, what stands out to you as like a big departure? Well, if back then <clears throat> you would have, when I was working at Tullets, for instance, you had a whole floor for foreign exchange. Mm -hmm. And on that mm -hmm. floor, you would probably have had 150 brokers. If you were to walk into ICAP now and see the voice broking section of the floor, you would have less than 10. And that's for all currencies. Oh, wow. So that's what electronic trading has done for the broking business. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. Voice trading now is virtually obsolete. Everything's done on platforms uh, through Reuters, through Bloomberg, um, and it's and even traders now. There's not even any proprietary desk left, hardly any. Gotcha. Okay. So all of the trading has gone to algorithmic computer based. Algorithmic stuff. trading. The banks now are basically brokers. They're taking execution orders from their clients. Uh, they basically do this, their clients' profit takes, stop losses. They've effectively taken over the broking business. And the brokers now, on, on particularly on foreign exchange, forwards, and even to a large extent bonds, have gone on to electronic trading platforms like EBS, like Broker Tech, these kind of things. So it's mm. fully automated. Okay. So I think that, that sort of covers a little bit of the, the technical aspect of what was going on. Um, but in a kind of, in a more sort of cultural aspect, what was it? What was it like walking onto a trading floor or a broking floor in the nineties? What was the kind of uh, well, you know, social you, milieu? Yeah, you start as a you start as a trainee, right? So mm -hmm. my first day, I walked into an office which wasn't much bigger than this, actually, yeah. with a round desk in the middle, and around that on desk, the podcasting floor here, on know, the podcast, it was it was we're all wearing those stripy jackets. It was uh, yeah, and it, technology wise, it was nowhere near as advanced as this, my friend. <laughs> you had a round desk, we kind of looked a bit like a donut. Okay. With 11 guys sitting around it, right? Mm -hmm. 10 or 11 people. And I didn't have a clue what they were going on about. I didn't recognize any of the bank names. I, I literally went in there completely cold. And it was my job in the beginning to get their breakfast. Now, the breakfast thing you might think is quite mundane, but if you can remember a breakfast order for 10 or 11 people, then you can remember an order from one of your clients. Got it. So it was part of the process. I didn't think it at the time, but actually it was quite an important, it's memory training, if you like. Sure, yeah. You just had to work out in the beginning how much you could rip off the people in the office to cover your mistakes. Got it. Because mm. if they ordered a runny egg, they wanted a runny egg. One right. of the first people I was introduced to on that desk was a guy called Dave. I won't give you the surname. He's, <laughs> he's dead now, may he rest in peace. He was a lovely chap. And his nickname was Growler. Right. And he was a big six foot four ex rugby player, right? Mm -hmm. And you expect a man called Growler to have a certain type of voice, don't you? Well, when I met mm -hmm. Dave the first time, he said, uh, I said, oh, Hi, Dave, nice to meet you. I'm Matthew. He went, Hi, my name's Dave. <laughs> so that was Growler. We had another guy on the desk called Johnny Clark, who's now in Australia. So I think we're safe from any retribution there. 
Uh, he was called Splinter because he looked like Splinter out of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> <laughs> I kid you not. We had another guy on the desk called Tony. His nickname was Bones. Right, okay. Because he was very thin. Right, makes sense. Um, we had a mad Irishman on the desk called Eugene. I mean, yeah, c- completely completely bonkers. I an think Irishman I've, called Eugene? Yeah. That's an interesting... Uh, I think I've told you about his Russian business trip when he took his clients to a, to a Russian nightclub and he was telling us a story and they said that, he said that the bouncers, they started cutting us with sticks. <laughs> I said, do you mean swords? He went, yeah, that's the fucking word I'm looking for. <laughs> it, was, it was fucking swords. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't realise you worked with Dave Courtney. <laughs> the <laughs> Irish <laughs> Dave Courtney. Well, he didn't have a sword. <laughs> he, he ran. <laughs> he was like Usain Bolt, mate. I don't know about Dave Courtney. He didn't, he didn't hang around for long when the swords came out, I can tell you. Right, yeah. Was this was this the same guy who found himself in a in a cab rank at South End Rail Station? That, yeah, he is the same guy. Yeah, yeah. He got he got on the train one night after a, after a very very long night out, absolutely desperate for a crap, and he realised once he'd got on the train that there was no toilet on the train. So by the time he gets to South End Station, he is he is bursting a blood vessel to get off that train. He gets off the train and they close the toilets in South End Train Station. So he goes wandering out of the train station and apparently there was a row of hedges as you came outside on the right-hand side. So he jumped over the hedges and took a squat behind the hedges and uh, noticed that there was lots of flashing lights and horns bibbing and he realised it was actually a taxi rank. (laughs) So that's another one of his classics. One summer he had this fan because it was very hot in the office. We've just set up a fan in our office for reference. This, so this, one's actually, this one's plugged in properly, I can see, but this one certainly wasn't. It didn't have a plug on it at all. It had two wires, mm-hmm. and he was plugging the two wires into the plug hole Yep. because right. the, the middle of the desk was hollow. So he got in there, and he was jiggling around with these wires, and he managed to short out the whole desk. <laughs> <laughs> so we couldn't do any broking for at least four hours while they were fixing it. He, he wasn't too popular well. that day. Yeah. <laughs> he came up with this... <laughs> <laughs> the director of the desk said, when he, when he just went like bang and everything stopped, he went, Eugene, what the fuck have you done in there? And I remember Eugene coming up with his hand all black going, uh, I think I fucked up there, Hutch. <laughs> it was just an absolute classic. But the bloke was a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. Funny guy, though. Yeah. Well, this sort of immediately sounds like the kind of thing you can't really imagine happening now just because I feel like all of these working environments are much more sanitized. Oh, no, no chance. Than they used to be. No chance. I certainly can't imagine anyone being allowed to fuck around with electrical wire in an office. No, I'll tell I you. Can't imagine what the sort of health and safety HR implications would be of that. If you go into a broker's now, it's 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 silent mm. because it's all done on keyboards. Mm-hmm. No one says anything. It's bizarre. When I was there, it, it I mean, it was noisy, right? It was screaming, shouting. Mm-hmm. I've seen physical fist fights in the office on on more than one occasion. Okay, what well, what might generate a physical fist fight on a '90s brokerage floor? Uh, typically when you are second. So if I'm paying, if I'm paying 50 for five, for five million, right? And the two guys, you've got one guy gives me first, the other guy gives me second. I go, no, you were first, you get your five done. The other guy has to go back to his client and say, sorry, I missed it. That's typically Mm. the the circumstances where it would happen. Normally when one of them was pissed and one of them wasn't after a lunch, for instance, Another aspect of things that seems to have changed, I don't recall in any of my time working in, not on Wall Street, but in New York, uh, alcohol at lunch. It sounds like that was a culture 
that existed oh, very, very strongly. Absolutely, absolutely. You, you, you know, you'd go out. Well, you were encouraged to go out, actually. I mean, that was what it was all about. It was about developing relationships and getting business out of people. That was the whole premise of it. Mm-hmm. Now you're not even allowed to go out with clients. Yep. So I, I don't know how it works now. I mean, for me, it's bizarre. How can you build a relationship with a computer screen? But yeah. this is what you're asked to do now. Back then, you would have lunches and you'd be out oh, three nights a week after work. Got it. Okay. With clients. Yeah, I mean, the impression that I've got is that, that some of that stuff does still happen, but not as much, basically not with publicly traded companies because they can't have contact with anybody that's not like a C-suite executive. And that's obviously way more regulated. But with private companies, from my impression is that there's a little more wiggle room as far as like going out and sort of making friends with people, put it that way. It's, it's, I mean, it's, that side of the business is highly regulated now. Mm. I mean, back when I started at Tullets, I remember, I remember looking, because as you came into Tullets, on the right-hand side, there was, there was a corridor that, that went along. I was on the third floor. But eventually, mm-hmm. I kind of had a little explore round. And uh, there, was a, there was a government bond broking room there. And I, it was the size of this office. And there was probably five people in there broking what you would now call sovereign debt. Mm-hmm. Right, that was the sovereign. That was the whole sovereign debt broking operation was in one room. Mm-hmm. So that shows that pretty much proves how much sovereign debt has increased per country Got from it. the nineties. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. If you go into a broker, if you go into a broker's now like an ICAP, you'll see that probably half of the floor is government bonds. Got it. So uh, I'm wondering with having to go out and make friends with clients like you've been describing, there must have been some encounters, like some weird shit going down as far as like just having to go out and entertain. And my impression was, at least from my experience, is sometimes when things get weird, you kind of have to look the other way because I mean, it's just, what are you going to do? It's clients, that kind of a thing. So I'm interested in this stuff that as long as it doesn't violate the, uh, what's the right word here? The statute of limitations, you know, we can <laughs> disclose it, that kind of a thing. Night is the 90s, son. We're well outside any statute of limitations, my friend. If you'd have asked me this in 2001, I couldn't have possibly have commented, but now. <laughs> you'll go and get it all, brother. All right. 9-11 was Come really on. the watershed for this stuff. You know? <laughs> no. oh, once, uh, once Osama brought those two boys down, you know, it was all over, really, for the, the banking secrets. <laughs> it was, yeah, I mean, look, it, was, it was typically the pub after work kind of, kind of thing. Um, but, I mean, there were a couple of old haunts um, the Stratford sauna was one. Um, so is this in Stratford? It, it is in Stratford. Ooh, Stratford in the nineties. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd have fancied that. No, it, it was Stratford in the nineties. Yeah, it was Stratford in the nineties. I mean Stratford now, to be honest, but Stratford in the nineties. I'll leave it up to your imagination as to what went on in the Stratford sauna. Mm-hmm. But suffice to say that I once went in there and um, I was sitting there having a beer, and I looked to my left, and there was a guy sitting there in bright red underpants and it was the head of trading from Barclays <laughs> and I just looked at him and I said uh, alright John <laughs> and he went huh. well he was mortified that I turned up I said uh, you know what you're going to do first thing in the morning and first thing in the morning he was making us quite a lot of prices mm. there you have it it was worth hanging out at the Stratford <laughs> caught red handed or red panted <laughs> yeah as you, as you might say Red panted in the Stratford sauna. That is, uh... We were in Langan's one evening and I was there with my manager and a couple of other guys from the desk and a couple of clients. And uh, my manager was quite drunk. And um, on the table just behind us 
was Shirley Bassey. And right. he said, and he, he turned around and said, oh, fucking Shirley. Is that Shirley Bassey? Yeah, that's Shirley, that's Shirley Bassey for sure. He's like, oh, fuck, I love Shirley Bassey. At which moment he stood up and went over to her table and started serenading her. Oh, my God. Yeah, which was highly embarrassing, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. What was Shirley's response? Did she? <laughs> I mean, if I wish I'd, you know, we didn't have mobile phones then. Otherwise, no. I'd have definitely got a picture of Shirley's face because I can assure you it was a fucking picture. <laughs> she was, it, it, was a, it was a face of, of horror, anger, and embarrassment all rolled into one, like, like, the, like the scream. Edvard oh. Munch, something along those lines. It, it wasn't good. Well, that's generally that's generally the reaction you're looking for from an impromptu <laughs> musical performance. Yeah. When you've got some old bloke coming up, and he was quite old at the time, pissed out of his face. To be fair, that is kind of Shirley Bassey's fan base. Yeah, <laughs> belting out the miniature walk in the joint. <laughs> you, <kind laughs> you know, you can imagine it, can't you? It wasn't good. <laughs> I'm fascinated by that as an as an approach, though, to be like, right, I love Shirley Bassey. How am I going to impress Shirley Bassey? I'm going to do a very poor cover version of a Shirley Bassey song to her at a dinner. Yeah, um, it's a, of all of all of the sort of methods of entry you could have employed there. I think it's possibly the lowest success rate. He didn't think it through. No, that's all I'm saying. He was drunk. He was a bit red lipped and reckless. Mm, but not red panted. No, thankfully. absolutely not. That, yeah. that was uh, that was all about Barclays. You see, if he'd have bumped into Shirley Bassey in the Stratford sauna, he might have had a bit more leverage. Christ Almighty! I don't think I don't think Shirley went down there. <laughs> I, I should I should hope not. <laughs> <laughs> she was a bit out of that particular uh, social setting. She didn't need the work. Mm. No, presumably not. Um, I'll so, say one thing about the city in yeah. the nineties. It was everybody had a purpose. Everybody was there to do a job, whether you were a broker or a trader, whether you were doing equities, whether you were doing bonds, FX, whatever you were doing. Mm. Everybody was there to do a job. We weren't burdened by huge amounts of regulation. We didn't have 50-man HR departments. We didn't have 25 people working in compliance and a legal department of 100 people. Uh, these, are, these, are, these are cost centers now, right? And, and therein lies the problem. Back then, the cost of running the operation was much slimmer. You could make money and you got, you got looked after. You got good salaries. You got good bonuses. I mean, now I don't think you're allowed a bonus, are you? Or is it capped at twice your salary or something along those lines? They definitely still get bonuses, but I don't know how much. Um, yeah, my experience has been that it really depends on what your job is. There'll be some people where it's absolutely capped yeah. and some people where like high risk, high reward jobs where you absolutely can make a lot more. But then also, if you make a bad trade, you're gone within an hour. You know, you're packing up your desk and that's yeah. it. Uh, that that was the uh, one of my friends from school worked uh, as a um, on an industrials team for um, uh, was a long short equities in a hedge fund and yeah I mean he went through five or six analysts in a year because if they if they it basically the minute that their portfolio manager wasn't happy it was like now nah, they're gone so I think it's probably worth at this point talking about we've kind of we've alluded to the fact that you know things were a bit more laissez-faire and now they're less so. So I think it's probably worth getting into some uh, some of the kind of incidents that might have tipped it in that direction. Uh, I flagged this to Matt earlier, but I feel like we can't really talk about the city in the '90s without talking about Nick Leeson and Bearings Bank, <laughs> um, uh, which I believe technically happened in Singapore, right? That was where he, he was. was uh, yeah, he was an equities trader in Singapore. Yeah. Yeah, but um, he was a uh, British. Uh, he was like he started off in the back office 
at uh, at Barings Bank, and then he ended up managing their sort of entire operation out in Singapore. But I think was doing a lot of business in kind of Southeast Asia in general. Um, and uh, he essentially this all it, this all came to a head in the ninety two or ninety three, uh, where it basically acknowledged that he had been making these incredibly risky trades and hiding all of his losses in an error account, which was supposed to be used for kind of basically adding up errors at the end of the day for when like the trades didn't align or something of that nature. Yeah, there's kind of um, mixed information about it. But in essence, Leeson, for I think for a couple of years, he made a lot of money for bearings, right? I mean, I think he mm. made something like 10% of their total trading profit on mm. his own, which is quite impressive. And I, I gather from that that he, he kind of got a lot of leeway mm-hmm. on how he traded, how he reported, um, I think the essence of him, the downfall of him was that he took, he was losing money. He'd kind of, he'd covered it up through the back office system and he'd covered it. He'd somehow he'd worked out a way to cover up the losses as well on the Mm. electronic reporting system. Mm -hmm. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. Um, And then he's, of course, when you start losing money and you're covering it up, you take more and more risk. Yeah. Mm. Uh, And he took a big punt on the Tokyo Stock Exchange and then the earthquake hit. Got it. So, the Nikkei fell out of bed, margin calls all over the place, and that's when they discovered, I think it was a $1.3 billion black hole. Fuck. Yeah. Right, in, in, in the trading. And of course, uh, in 1992, $1.3 billion was a lot more oh, money it, than it, it is now. It, it, was a huge, it was a huge pickle. Having said that, if you look at that bearing situation, bearings actually probably could have worn a $1.3 billion loss, but... It was the process of how they wound those trades up because they're only paper losses. They're only paper losses until you physically come out of the transaction, right? Mm. Until you physically yeah. sell out yeah. of your future, mm. out of your option, out of your, out of your net position. So I can't remember who handled that process. I have a feeling it was Barclays, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure they weren't kind to mm-hmm. bearings when they were exiting those bearings positions. And in mm. the end, ING bought bearings for one pound. So a German banking dynasty, I think it was German. Right? Isn't they Dutch, IMG? ING's Dutch, but oh. I think bearings originally was German. Oh, right. Dynastical German banking family, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, a merchant bank completely disappeared for a quid. That's wild. Mm. Quite sad. But it was a huge story back in those days. A huge story. Yeah. What was it like when the sort of news broke in London? What was, I imagine the fallout from it was quite large. Took a few days to find out what exactly was going on, mm-hmm. but a bank like Bearings, who were quite conservative going bust, was a, was a shocker. Mm. Was a shocker because in the foreign exchange market, Bearings was quite a conservative bank. They were a good bank. They made money. You just didn't expect this kind of thing from a bank like Bearings. Yeah, you would expect it from a bank that was more risk on, that had a huge proprietary trading operation. You could kind of, like a Lehman's, that kind of bank, you could kind of expect it. Or Lehman's as it was then was Shearson's. Mm. Um, but Bearings- Of course, Lehman's went on to be completely fine. <laughs> yeah, no problem there at all. Lehman's was, was the, yeah, was the, was the golden egg. Yeah. Did right, Lehman's, Bear Stearns. I think Bear Stearns was AAA on the day it went bust, right? Yeah, it might have been. Amazing, eh? Well, that Those was- Those rating agencies did a crappy, yeah. cracking job. <laughs> yeah. <that's- laughs> cracking job. There's a video, actually, I think it's the, the chairman or the CEO of Bear Stearns is giving a speech when he gets the news that they've basically just gone bust. Yeah. Cracking video. It's a cracking clip. 
Well, if we can pull, if we can pull some audio from it, we will. We'll, we'll, we'll do, stick yeah. it. We'll stick it in. It's a bit like um, the Donald Trump Twin Towers one when he's reading the kids' book. Oh, oh George Bush. Yes, yeah, George yeah, yeah, Bush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he, when he, yeah. when he's, he's in remember school, that one? Yeah, when he's just whispering in his ear. Yeah, and he just goes like, "It's one of those." Yeah, it, mm. it, it's a, it's a cracker. Oh, that's that's mad. Yeah, yeah. it's a good one. Yes. Bear Stearns was a yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Bearings was a was a real real surprise. Yeah. So, like, I'm just guessing that risk management as people talk about it now that just wasn't really it wasn't as ratcheted down back then as it is uh the processes were completely different mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um back now it's all electronic systems yep. so you it's, it's quite difficult to hide things having said that i mean in recent history we've seen the guy at SOCGEN. how much did the guy at SOCGEN lose i think it was about three and a half billion mm -hmm. and we also saw the guy at ubs even more recently drop an absolute clonker that was one point something billion, I believe. So it does, it mm. can still go on. It can still go on. The question with the SOC Gen 1 is, how do you manage to lose billions and billions and billions on equities when equities are basically only been going up? Yeah, I mean, there is that question, isn't it? Like the way that things have been happening. Yeah. We, we, we talk about this on our show a lot, that there is this bizarre situation where hype has taken over and you can look at a company's fundamentals and like, they are dog shit. They are absolutely garbage. Mm. But for some reason, their their price keeps going up. Their share price keeps going up, and it's it's just this weird. The joke we've made is that we we referring to that that the like equities markets as as just the joke being it's the line. Like people are obsessed with the line going up, but it's the joke we've made on the show is, is that the line is divorced now because it's like there's no real relevance in some of these cases. Tesla is a great example between their actual fundamentals and like what their their share value is. It makes no sense. No, it's, mm. I mean, it's money supply, right? Mm. You've got so much money supply at zero, mm. at zero percent interest. Look at the US, what they're doing. I mean, you're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars in stimulus. Now, they're going to tell you it's for infrastructure. It's for the people of the United States. It's not. Where does it go? The rise of private equity since the financial crisis in 2008 was not by design. There was just a lot of cheap money on the street. Mm. And the pri all the big private equity firms are owned and they were founded by ex-bankers. Yeah. Mm. And where did they get their money from? Presuming you, th you think Apollo got has got 170 billion from private clients? Yeah, no, it's impossible. Well, I mean, and I think about that too with um, some of the things that you're seeing. I mean, it's 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 it kind of tangential to to London, but some of the effects of that you're seeing. There's just so much money sloshing around that uh, private equity getting into like the newspaper business for some reason in America. You hear about this, like local papers getting bought up by private equity firms. Now they're typically doing asset stripping, but like. Your local newspaper in Denver, Colorado, for example, might be owned by a private equity office in Boston or New York or something like that. And it's just, there is so much money out there that, yeah, we've started to see that yeah. happen with us. Well, just last week, there was a US private equity firm trying to buy Morrison Supermarkets. Um, who yeah, I think they, ended up, they ended up not getting it. It almost went through, but then... Yeah, they do. They, it I mean, they've all got different appetites, but they do invest in retail. I mean, okay, supermarkets, I guess is a reasonably safe bet. Mm -hmm. um, but retail, for sure, is a weird one for me now. Yeah, for sure. Given, given what we're seeing on the high street now, I think retail is an, an odd one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I read something over the weekend where apparently private equity now, or, or, or 54 billion of investment money is going into ESG funds. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think I know what ESG is supposed to mean. I don't think I do at all, to be honest well, with you. Well, no, it's confusing. But... Uh, 
how are you going to place 54 billion into ESG? It doesn't work. Can you give a potted explanation of what it is for the listener? Well, I think ESG is supposed to be social impact stuff. So it should be uh, it should be green tech. It should be renewable energy. It should be, yeah. I mean, Riley's talked about this a lot before about mm. these investments, and it winds up being a lot of it being sleight of hand and stuff like that. Oh, it's it, it's they've definitely labelled it. Yeah, but yeah. what lurks behind the label is not sustainability. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm wondering, like, so say thirty years ago. What was it like as far? Because I mean, it sounds like the money supply, the kinds of investors that were involved, like the people who were putting the money up, it just wasn't the same. You didn't have what is it, um, BlackRock? Is it having like trillions in assets no. or things like that? Like there, it, it wasn't as lumped together as there as it is now. No, your your typical kind of buy side bank clients back then would have been central banks. This was before central banks got into the business of buying assets. Um, so one big client back then was Bank Nagara which is the Indonesian central bank. Got it. Okay. Uh, I think it's the Indonesian. Uh, then you would have had typical players like Shell, mm-hmm. like BP. Uh, Quantum was a big one back yeah, in I those remember days. Yeah, Quantum, yeah. Well, Quantum was George Soros's fund back in those days. Yep. The, guy mm-hmm. that, the guy that crashed the pound, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. We, actually, that's a good question to just jump off really quickly. If I can interrupt you, is uh, talk about was it was it like the flash crash on the pound and was it 1992, wasn't it? It was Black Wednesday. Black Wednesday, yeah. Uh, I was there that day. What was that like? Uh, it was. I worked about 36 hours straight. Um, cable brief break to the Stratford sauna and then back yeah. In. I mean, you're, you know, you're talking about pricing that was half a big figure wide, a big figure wide. It was all over the place. Sterling Mark was the one where it really went on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the Sterling Mark desk had a direct line to the Bank of England, and the Bank mm-hmm. of England was on the bid. They were trying to support Sterling, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it got to the stage where the Sterling Mark desk were just going twenty five years, twenty five years, twenty five years, and the Bank of England said, okay, minimums of fifty, fifty years. 50 yours, 50 yours. Then it was minimums of 100, and it was 100 yours, 100 yours. It was ridiculous. Mm. Uh, Quantum was one of the big players in that. Uh, I remember a big American bank was interviewed that afternoon, that evening, after making a fortune on the day mm-hmm. and uh, crowing with delight that he'd played a part in fucking the Bank of England. And uh, the head office were on the phone about five minutes later, and he was fired within Jeez. about half an hour for making that little faux pas on yeah. live television. Yeah, so I mean, because we've heard about it, you know, people talking about it in the news and stuff like that um, and related to like politically what was happening in the UK at the time. I mean, I was, I think you weren't born yet and I was a little kid, so mm-hmm. I don't have any real memory of it at all. But I just, you hearing about that kind of thing that like at the time, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but nowadays there would be some kind of, of risk limits that would stop trading in a situation like that. It was um, it, it was very it was it was a weird one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we've seen it since then. We saw it quite quite recently with the Central Bank of Switzerland, for instance. The Central Bank of Switzerland tried to hold down the value of the Swiss franc, mm-hmm. uh, and they said, "No, no, no, our, our appetite is limitless." Three days later, they pulled, and that's when several platforms went bust mm-hmm. because they, they they couldn't handle the volatility. A lot of people lost their money on that one. Um, and it, it was it was a mad move. It was a mad move. Uh, back then, it was the it was the purview of central banks to support their currency. Yeah, right. Um, we've seen it to a large degree 
since 2008 with the ECB policy. So if you look at how the ECB has bought sovereign debt mm -hmm. since that date, they're basically keeping economies afloat by underpinning the value of their sovereign debt. So Italy, for instance, Italy, there is no way Italian debt is at 1%. I mean, it, it's just not. Yeah. For the benefit of the listeners, what you're, to, uh, and correct me if, I'm, if this is the wrong interpretation here, but like Italian debt is far more risky than something that would be, like, you, would, you would offer a higher interest rate with the expectation that it's, exactly. gonna, it's probably not going to be as safe as an investment. Yes, your, 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 your yield, your, your interest rate correlates directly to the perceived risk. Mm -hmm. So in the so case like of- German debt is negative. Like Germany is negative yield. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. They were selling a, they were selling a, a German 30-year sometime last year. Uh, it was like over, massively oversubscribed and it was something like minus 50 basis points. Something, I mean, something ridiculous. People giving their money and actually paying for the privilege. Yeah. What is the benefit of that? I, 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 this is where safety. the limits of my understanding kind of it's, end. It's just safety. Gotcha. It's where can I put my money and not lose it? Gotcha. It has to be. I mean, there's no other driver, right? I think also because you and I talked about this before that some people are in these are in these trades just because they know other people are going to be in them, and so you get a sensation where someone's like, "Well, I'll buy a load of this German debt because I know someone else will buy it off me." That's also yeah. If you're if yeah. you're going to trade it, um, because the demand far outweighed you know far outweighed the 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 physical amount of the asset that was available. Yeah, you're in the driving seat if you're holding it. I feel like mm. that's a similar thing too, especially with equities, that when people see one shop or one, one trading platform or someone making a large trade on things that generates interest. But I didn't realize the same was true mm. with, with Forex, that like people are just following, following the herd, I suppose. You had a natural, back in those days, first of all, you had a natural appetite for Forex. There was a lot more foreign exchange going on in the world. You physically had more currencies, right? Mm. In Europe, you had a lot more currencies back then. Um, and so there was a natural demand for currency. Mm-hmm. Dollars, German marks, big trading partners. These were the two big ones. Yep. Dollar mark was was huge. Yep. Dollar mark was a huge currency. I mean, I remember, I remember sitting on the dollar mark desk, and, and these guys were throwing it around. It was by mm -hmm. far the biggest, the most active currency pair. And I remember somebody asking for a price in a billion dollar mark. Okay, now that was a big ticket. Yeah. And I remember a Finnish bank called Consalis Osaki Panki quoting a choice price. Try and in say that billion. when you pissed in the Stratford sauna. So typically, the, the bigger the amount mm -hmm. that you're quoting in, the wider the price. Yep. So if you're asking for a price in 5 million, you'd quote 45.50, let's say. If you're asking for a price in 10, you're going to quote 45.52, 48.55, whichever way you read it, something like that. You're going to widen the price a bit yep. because it's going to take you a bit longer to get out of the trade. Got it. So this was in a billion. Yeah. And they quoted one number. Wow. I'm 46 choice. You can buy or sell at 46. So is that basically saying you're not really making a profit on that trade? It's, it's just saying, I don't care if you buy or sell a billion dollar mark, I'm quite happy with the position. That's the amount of liquidity there was in that market then. And this was going through voice brokers. Gotcha. Mm. Man. Yeah, so it just feels like a lot of that has gone away. And the, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the kind of like deal making or the, the culture of sort of having to like shop around and stuff like that, calling people you knew, things like that. That has changed too. Yeah, completely gone. It's all done on platforms now. Mm. Got it. It's all done on platforms. What do you think that's done to like the culture of people who work in trading now? It's killed it. Really? It's, it's absolutely killed it. Yeah. I mean, they just go in, sit on their little tippy tappy, do their trades and mm. go home. There's no soul left gotcha. in the job. 
everybody used to meet after work. Every, there, was a, there was a good social aspect of the job, days at the races, all these kind of things with clients. Now that's been, it just doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a shame. I think it's a shame because there was a lot of camaraderie back then. Even when, you know, people were working for different brokerage houses, we didn't care. We used to bump into each other out. We always used to have a laugh. There was, there was a competitive spirit, but it wasn't, it wasn't a bad competitive spirit. Mm. Um, and I'm still friends with most of the traders that I was doing business with in the 90s. Gotcha. So even those relationships, you know, they were proper people. They were decent people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, some of them helped me a lot in my late, when I moved to Greece in 97 to take over the brokerage there. Um, some of those guys were extremely helpful. Mm. Extremely so let's talk helpful. about Greece a little bit and the work there. Cause I think that that's probably, it's kind of, it's a little bit of a digression from our, from our main topic, but I think it will probably be like an illustrative one, especially given the sort of headlines that Greece makes these days yeah. in the financial world. I think kind of that, that like period of the Greek economy opening and being involved in trading there is quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'd never been to Greece. I got offered this, this job in Greece. Um, I still don't know how, but I did. And I thought, you know, why not go and, why not go and give it a crack and mm-hmm. see how it works out? Mm-hmm. So I went to Greece, not knowing any Greeks, not go- knowing any Greek banks at all, not having a clue about the Greek market, and took over a, a Greek brokerage. Um, so my first, the brokerage was, wasn't making any money. Um, they were doing a couple of deals a day, which for me was incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but one, the difference between London and Greece was that in, in London, as a broker, you were a, a tiny fish in a huge pool. When you go to a smaller market like Greece, with the kind of profile that I had as a Londoner coming in, all of a sudden you're a big fish in a little pool. Mm-hmm. And I had some, I suppose, automatic respect because i'd come from london gotcha mm. um athens was athens london was london having said that you know i went around i saw all of the banks and they were all extremely supportive apart from a couple mm-hmm. um it was a completely different dynamic from london and i'll i'll give you an example mm-hmm. um the first order i got in athens was to buy 150 million euro euro drachma all right and my first thought was, okay, look, we're dealing in a thin market. There's not a lot of, de- not a lot of depth. Um, so I turned to the guy to my left, the Greek guy, mm-hmm. and I said, okay, who are the panickers? And he said, Midland. He said, American Express Bank. These are Athens-based banks, right? Ergo Bank and mm-hmm. another one. So I asked these guys for prices in five, mm-hmm. and they gave me a price in five. And even though I was a buyer, I sold them. Five yours, five yours, five yours, five yours. And I passed them the name of the buyer, knowing that they would immediately panic and sell 10 to try and get short and make some money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they went out, they took my five, and they went out, and they all sold 10. Right? They've got five away to London banks. They've got five away to local banks. And then I go back to the market, and I ask for prices in 10, prices in 20, knowing now that the market's 20 points lower. And that's when I started buying them. Gotcha. So I fit the first order I ever got in Athens. I filled it comfortably and I filled it, I filled the whole order at around about 02, if I remember rightly. And the market was, when I got the order, was around about 80, 85. So I filled it within sort of 20 pips and I did about 180. So that was a real test. So mm. I'm interested because I, I've, I've talked to people in the past who've worked uh, in Eastern European or in the Balkans or uh, 
elsewhere in markets that were kind of liberalizing in the 90s. Mm. Uh, and there are always just crazy stories about sort of cultural, not, if not like mismatches, then just like a lot of big events happening and being in the center of things. I've talked to people who worked, you know, in, in Poland or in Russia in the 90s, and it's just, they have wild stories about some of the things they experienced. I'm wondering, like, having worked in the Balkans and having worked in Greece, like, did you have any experiences like that where you're just, you find yourself in a very interesting situation, you know, not necessarily like, you know, buying a whole army base's worth of Soviet hardware, but, you know, something along those lines, like just wild mis- mismatch kind of situations. Yeah, we weren't gun running or anything like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <clears throat> it was, yeah, I mean, I suppose one that still always makes me laugh to this day was I, w- I went to lunch with uh, one of the traders from National Bank of Greece. They never went for lunch, right? But this day, let's go for lunch. So we went for lunch. But a very nice lunch. We had some wine. We had some whiskeys after the lunch and we went back to the office and I, I get into the office and you've got, you know, in front of you, you've got speaker boxes and all the, the banks come out of the speaker boxes. You've got a microphone and two phones. Okay. And National Bank of Greece's speaker box. I can hear this like <laughs> coming at the speaker box, right? I'm, I'm clicking in the line. Hey, mate, what, what are you going on? And he's like, hey, mate, where are, where are the mouses, mate? Well, where are the fucking mouses? What are you talking about? You know the mouses, mate. I said, you mean you mean mice? And he's like, yes, yes. Where are the fucking mice? I said, mate, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, let's see where the mice are. And he comes in. He goes, uh, okay, uh, eighty bid, eighty bid euro Greek. I'm eighty bid, eighty bid. Everyone, yours. Okay, okay, okay. I said, you, you've got a few there, mate. Don't worry about that. Figure bid now. We go up. Everybody again, yours. Okay, thank you. Twenty bid now. Uh, off a fifty bid. So the guy just moves the market up, up, up while laughing and saying, where are the mouses made? Where are the mouses? So in the end, he's, he's getting a few. I get a call on the outside line from another bank in Greece. And he says, uh, listen, Matthew, I don't know what you think you're doing, uh, but what you're doing is misleading the market. I said, I beg your pardon. I said, because you gave me and now it's gone higher. I'm misleading the market. No, no, no. If you've got any balls, sell some more. I'm not misleading the market at all. So I put the phone down on this guy, kick his box off. I'm not going to speak to him again. In the meantime, the guy in National Bank is going crazy with the E-E-E-E-E. Where are the mouses? Where are the mouses? We, get, we, do it. We, did, you know, we did a lot of business that afternoon. I don't know how he got on from a profit sense of the word. <laughs> not very well, I would imagine. But it was a funny afternoon. But what were the mouses? He was just so hammered that he was... He, what he meant was that, you know... Well, the point he was trying to make was that all the people in the market are mice. Okay. Right. Right. And he's, that was his analogy, right? <laughs> like, I'm the cat. Where are the fucking mouses, mate? <laughs> Where are the mouses, mate? <laughs> Where are the mouses? The same guy, funnily enough. There, there was a guy that used, to, that, that used to be very senior at a Greek bank, okay? Mm. And he wasn't the best-looking fella. He looked a bit like... Um, Groucho Marx. Right. You know those masks you get? Oh, with the, the nose with and the, the stupid glasses, yeah, 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 yeah. the nose and the moustache? Mm-hmm. Well, he looked, like, he looked a bit like that, right? So me and the guy from National, there was a Christmas party. So we turn up at this Christmas party and in he walks and he sees Mickey sitting at the bar. And he goes, okay, listen, my friend, the carnival is over. Take off the fucking mask. <laughs> and i'm just like i didn't come in with him Mm -hmm. i just kind of melted into the background and sidled off to the left 
<laughs> okay, the carnival is over. Take off the fucking mask now at the top of his voice. <laughs> I mean, hilarious, but not something I would do. Yeah. That's certainly a way to approach a business relationship. It, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it, almost a greeting. Mm, yeah. But I mean, it did, it, it, it did crack me up. Absolutely crack me up. So I think this would probably be a good way into what I wanted to wrap up on was uh, 2008 and the crash and sort of oh. the, the effects of that and what that happened. I mean, were you, were you still in Greece at the time or were you in Portugal then? I, I was in Portugal then. Um, I moved back to Greece in 2009 where okay. I was head of business development for a, for a large London broker in, for Greece and the Balkans. So I, I saw uh, what happened directly after that because I was <laughs> in the market. I wasn't actively broken. Then I was business development, but obviously I was still in touch with everything that went on in the market. Mm. So what was your kind of overall perception of everything that happened in that period? Um, from a Greek perspective, the Greek banks were always quite conservative. Mm. Um, they always had good tier one capital ratios. Their loan to deposits were within you know, very good levels. Uh, unfortunately for the Greek banks, they held a lot of Greek debt. Um, and because of the crisis, Greek debt effectively became worthless gotcha. um, to the point where it cost too much money to physically hold Greek debt. Um, you can't, typically, you would repo your bonds. Okay? You do a repurchase order with another bank where another bank lends you money, an LTV, mm-hmm. against your bond. But after the crisis, of course, with effectively junk paper, you can't repo it. Mm. That's when the ECB introduced these. Effectively, you repoed your debt directly with the ECB at a cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we all saw what happened to Greece, right? They basically went bankrupt. Yeah. I'm not saying that the Greeks were blameless, um, but what was done to them afterwards, in my opinion, was, was pretty harsh. Mm. Well, in terms of the sort of credit controls and austerity that was imposed on uh, them by the European Yeah, I mean, I think... I think if you're supposed to be in it together, um, I think there are fairer ways of tackling a situation than the way they did. I think the Germans set out to make an example of the Greeks. Mm. Yeah. And of course, when you, put, when you bring austerity into a country and you crucify people and people become desperate, they make bad choices. It was always, there were two mainstream parties, New Democracy, which was centre-right, and PASOK, which was centre-left. Um, what the European Union did was they destroyed that. Um, Pacification has become kind of a buzzword we hear about a lot about happening to center-left parties in Europe yeah. post-crisis that yeah. you know, PASOK went from something like a winning parliament, something like 42-something percent to like yeah. single-digit percentage in the next yeah. election, yeah. Mm. And Syriza uh, won, and then... As and I understand, you had the rise of Krizyavki as well. Again, you know, this is desperate people making poor choices. But when I look back at that time, I mean, okay, the far right is, has got no place in, in politics. Um, but Chrissy Avgi, the Golden Dawn, as they gotcha, okay, There's yeah. nothing Which golden. Which is not nothing. something you can order at the Stratford Sauna. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't ask for it. Absolutely no. not. Yeah. Absolutely not. I'm not going back to that one. We don't so do please, that here, officer. Please don't get me involved yeah. in this. Um, please don't get me involved in the Stratford. For fuck's yeah. sake. Um, mm. But Golden Dawn, yeah, they, of course, like, they got up to a high of something like 10% of the vote or something. They mm. were never threatening to take over the country, but they were quite aggressive. And from, a, from an outsider kind of looking in, you know, Golden Dawn were out there. They were giving people food. They were giving fe- people food parcels. Mm. 
Uh, they were doing stuff that other people weren't doing. And if you're someone desperate, yeah, I can understand why that message might resonate. Mm. That period from 2008 on was an absolute disaster. So what did you make of the state of play going into it? As in, obviously, I mean, I think uh, people who listen to this are probably familiar with uh, the big short and Michael Burry and stuff like that. And kind of, to some extent, like the CDO crisis and what was going on at the ratings agencies. But it's interesting from, I don't know, from like an insider perspective or to, to some extent an insider perspective, like what, what, what of what they were doing was like genuinely very bad practice and what of it was kind of they got unlucky. Um, from what I've read and, and my own personal opinion is that it was, I mean, the subprime crisis is, is one aspect of it mm. that I've read a bit about. So in essence, you could take a portfolio of... 10,000 mortgages, okay? Mm. You could wrap them up into, a, into an instrument, a bond, wrap it up. You could rate that bond because it was asset-backed by properties. Yeah. Um, and you could sell that bond to your counterparties, i.e. Lehman's, Merrill Lynch, Bear Stearns. They were lapping this stuff up. They were making money on it. But what Burry found out when he looked at – see, he looked at a bond – which was an asset-backed, A-rated security. Mm-hmm. And, he thought, and he broke it down into its constituent parts, which, could be, which was thousands of mortgages, okay? Yeah. And he looked into the default rates of those mortgages, and he discovered that default rates on those mortgages were at something like, if memory serves me right, 64 68%, okay? Yeah. And he worked out that that's not sustainable. So he put on what, what is now known as the big short, right? He went around the street and he went to these people and said, I want to go short of these securities. And they laughed at him. And they said, why? Because it's what I want to do. Can you, mm. do, can you do 50 million? Sure, we'll do 100. Mm. Now, that leads me to believe that the people that put those securities together never looked at the underlying performance of the, of the, of the individual assets mm. that formed the base of the security. Now, this is negligence. I mean, cl- clearly. What I recall from that period is things that are maybe more familiar to UK listeners, but maybe not as much in America. Uh, variable rate mortgages, for example, are not a common thing in the United States. They, they became much more popular. And also, you just had an asset valuation kind of snowball effect where you know it's very common now for people who held on to their homes during the mm. crisis uh, to basically still be paying 30 or 25-year mortgages on properties that you know were valued at time of purchase at twice what they're valued now. Now it has it has caught up because there's been a massive just cash in America spreading every people trying to buy homes, a lot of private equity getting involved in buying homes. That has changed, but over the course of the last decade, my sister-in-law is an example of this, somebody who bought a house at the peak of the market because mortgages you cheap credit available yeah. and then a house that was valued at $375,000 was suddenly worth Hundred thousand or hundred and seventy-five, one hundred eighty thousand dollars, and so you're basically lifetime paying on a mortgage, working lifetime paying on a mortgage that, when you own the asset at present, the asset is not anywhere near what it was worth when you bought it, and um, and that that I feel like that's just like you were describing in Greece. There's a huge political ramification of that in America of people who were sort of like, well, the government says they're going to help us with mortgages, help mm. us with mortgage relief. And then when you called the government helpline, they just connected you with the bank that was foreclosing on you in the first place. Yeah. And there was no meaningful relief. And that, I mean, mm. you see huge political changes because of just people being disgusted by 
what they see is a government that doesn't do anything besides making money for the people who are connected to it. And uh, maybe that's a superficial interpretation of, the, of what happened, but it did strike me that like, yeah, you, the knock-on effects of this stuff are still going on. I mean, I, I, when I used to teach uh, at a university when I was a graduate student, I mean, I had so many students who were from outer borough New York in like Brooklyn, Queens and Staten Island whose parents had lost their homes. Yeah. That was just a very, for kids that age, if they were in college in the early mm. parts of the 2010s, that was just a very common refrain that their family, they were suddenly renters when their families had owned homes before because they, they had been foreclosed on. And that's, that's a, I mean, that got ignored mostly in America after a certain point, but like you're still seeing the, of just the fact that like a lot of this stuff was, there was an incentive to inflate the house prices. There was an incentive to do cheap credit for these mortgages. Mm. And then there are all of these, as I see, even institutional investors who were like, well, Moody's rated these CDOs at AAA, so we can invest, you know, Swedish kindergarten teachers' pensions in them. Why not? And then the whole thing fell apart. It was, uh, yeah, well, it wasn't, wasn't good. Uh, I think, you know, I think your average person is probably three months from back bankruptcy, right? Mm. At any given moment in their life. Um, so if you're, you know, if your source of income goes and in a crisis, invariably a lot of people become unemployed, you're going to have a problem. Um, mm. And if assets start to plummet, then obviously the companies, the institutions that hold those assets have got a problem. Um, we're probably going to see it in the not too distant future in stock markets, I would imagine. Um, you know, you read, d- depending on what you read and who you read, there seems to be a consensus that, it is, that, that we are looking at a bubble now in stock mm. market values and company valuations. So, you know, you might, we might see another big crash. Yeah. Right? It, who knows? I, I wouldn't bet against it. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways we were anticipating something last year when stuff started closing down and it looked like it was going to happen. And then it seems that instead, uh, asset prices have gone up, equities have gone up, things like that. But there is this feeling, at least from what, for us, for our show, when we talk about startups and we talk about things like the SoftBank uh, mm-hmm. Vision Fund and things along those lines and the ways that all of the venture capital stuff that goes into these total loss-making enterprises, yep. there's this feeling that at some point, this is going to stop. But when it stops, mm. it's not going to be you know, a slow backing off. It's going to be like just a crisis where you know, all of a sudden, mm. all of these things that have been, been put forth as these instruments that are going like, to reshape the economy are just going to go away because they're all based on, like you were describing earlier, you know, getting zero interest loans effectively, like getting, getting, getting um, from institutional mm. investors to people who can borrow it at low rates. And then operating at a loss, but dominating market share. Mm. But then at a certain point, it's like, okay, but what's go- that's in the best case scenarios. In some cases, it's just these are companies that are never going to make a profit. Mm. What, you se- what we've seen is an unprecedented level of share buyback by big corporations. They are buying back billions of dollars of stock, uh, and they're doing it with cheap cash. They're doing it with mm. cheap funding. Okay, we haven't seen this level of share buybacks since the big Wall Street crash. Which when was it? Twenty nine. Twenty nine. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about that too because that, I remember reading an article recently about this. That that's what a lot of emergency funds that were doled out in twenty twenty in the U.S. went to. They were the the way that the U.K. government uh, issued coronavirus relief stuff to companies, mm. and were they were lending through high street banks to keep comp- like the furlough yeah. scheme yeah. in the U.S. The similar program. Uh, so much of the money that they received went to stock buybacks. Yep. And mm. yeah, that's been, that was the same thing with um, 
overseas profit tax holiday. The same thing with um, the tax cuts that went that happened, mm. the corporate tax cuts that happened in the U.S. under Trump. Like that money all went towards buybacks and mm. uh, and then executive compensation. What could and- be dodgy about buying your own stock? I mean, you know, surely that's a vote of confidence in your own company. Where's <laughs> your vote of confidence? Yeah. <laughs> I, my company's doing so well, I'm going to buy all of its oh, stock. The, the idea of floating a stock is to let the market decide mm. the valuation of aforementioned stock. Well, if you hold it all, <laughs> kind of well, and, that's, and, that's, and that's kind of the point, isn't it? That like they're they're buying up stock with with uh, liquidity so that it drives mm. the price up higher, so that then if they you basically all of their shareholders wind up wealthier on paper but uh yeah, yeah. Mm. but it's it's effectively that's not money that's going into um Any i don't kind know of business Apex, development taking yeah. a business development or compensation for people below executive level it's just going into raising the the asset price and then subsequently like for ex- compensation or shareholder compensation like they're ma- or dividends they're making you more. yeah i mean you 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 play the game okay you play the game and that's all great until it starts going down. Yeah. Mm. When it starts going down and you know that you've got debt on your balance sheet that you use to buy back your shares, do you think your creditor is going to keep funding you if your share price is plummeting? Highly mm. unlikely. Yeah. The likelihood is there's going to be a series of massive margin calls, but let's wait and see how it develops. I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a, a seer. Of course, yeah. Mm. Um, well, the, the one question I had for you, and I know after this you want to wrap, Milo, is um, mm. we have spent in the last year on Trash Future, not on Britonology, but, but on Trash yeah. Future, talking about Greensill and uh, supply chain financing. And really Our came down Australian. to... Riley Riley read a couple of articles in the FT and was fascinated by it and started digging into it and started talking about it. But we were not surprised when it all unraveled after looking into how it worked. And I'm interested in your take on the way that Everything from just like the, the the concept to the way that it seemed to implicate a lot of people in higher echelons of UK politics, for example, in this this thing that even on paper you're like that sounds like a means of just hiding debt on your balance sheet so that you can get a better audit. Yeah, well, look at uh, Wirecard as well, mm. right? The German company. I mean, they, they do said, own a lot of Libyan mercenaries. To be fair, but they uh, they, they you know. They're long they, Libyan mercenaries. They made a statement that they had a billion dollars, I think it was a billion euros, mm. on account in, where was it? Argentina, I think. An Argentinian bank, mm. right? And the auditors didn't think that that was a little bit dodgy. And we're talking about supposedly one of the big four. Yeah. Right? Mm. I'm not going to get onto that subject. To say I loathe them is an understatement. Um, <laughs> and then you've got this green seal. I mean, I don't know the origins of green seal. Um, I do know that they received an awful lot of money. I mean, SoftBank, for instance, uh, you know, basically bought into Greensill to the tune of one and a half billion dollars. Um, trade finance, in essence, should be fairly simple. I mean, you should be funding transactions. You shouldn't be funding people or companies. I think what they did was they bought loan books, um, which is a lazy man's trade finance because it means you don't have to do due diligence on each transaction. Gotcha. You're mm. just buying a rated loan book. If you look at someone like ABN, right? ABN AMRO, the Dutch bank. Mm. Yeah. They're closing down their trade finance, so they're selling off their trade finance portfolio of loans. I think that was the kind of thing that Greensill did, which is fairly similar to the subprime crisis, actually, if, if you look at it, right? I mean, you're buying a package of something, 
without actually knowing every underlying asset. Whereas if you lend, if you originate your own transactions and you lend into those transactions, you know the transaction you're lending into. Yeah. You know mm. that you've got a letter of credit. You know that you've got an SBLC. You know that your buyer is this guy and you know that he's investment grade. You know that your trader has been in operation for over three years. I mean, these are some of the basic things, right, you, you should look for in a transaction. Yeah. Did Greensill do that? I doubt it. There was a, an anecdote. We spoke to one of the FT's reporters about this, and um, he determined from digging through one of uh, Greensill's investor, I want to say it was like one of their quarterly reports or something along those lines, where they had talked about uh, a bunch of different firms that had adopted the Greensill platform for supply chain financing and for um, for the, like the payment systems that they had set up. And he just and his reporting team just went through and contacted these companies to confirm this, and none of them had any idea what he was talking about. Really, they had just they had just wholesale fabricated it, and he's like, ah, but this is the thing that the former prime minister of the UK is going to bat for. Like, mm. it just seems like it was a lot of people buying into the hype. Well, he, he yeah. didn't do any due diligence, did he? I mean, he took the paycheck mm. without doing any due diligence, which is which is criminal. For me, for me, it's criminal. Mm. And um, all best DC. Yeah, well, it, great job, David. Great job. Uh, but I think, you know, with these, these kind of companies, it, I don't think you can do that on a platform, first of all. I just don't think we're there yet mm-hmm. in terms of tracking, in terms of technology, in terms of vetting documents. I don't think, you, I don't think it's there yet. So when I read that about Greensill, that they had this, I was thinking, no. No, I don't believe they've got some kind of platform where you can borrow and lend. And I, I just don't believe. Oh it. yeah, no, there was no technology. No, the technology was the smokescreen for. And this is something we were always saying on the show: is like whenever a company says that they have developed technology, it's invariably, almost always, a way to get around labor or financial regulations. Yeah. Um, and that the actual technology involved is just like Microsoft Excel. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's the it's the you know if you if you paint a nice veneer on something. Mm. Uh, it's surprising what you can get away with, yeah, isn't it? Because you know he promoted Greensill as you know the solution, the trade finance solution, the loan lending solution. Right? Greensill was uh, this is how it was. This is how it was dressed up, mm. and and people <laughs> people fell for it. But it's not the first time in history, is it? No, mm. I think the thing that really kind of shocked us was the fact that it was pretty obvious that by classified by allowing Greensill to acquire your accounts payable, companies could then in audit not report that as obligations because they basically, it was off their balance sheet. So it was sort of this soft bank backed instrument to make companies that Greensill had invested with or partnered with seem way more solvent than they actually were. Yeah. And it was just like, to us, even I mean, we're mm. not exactly experts in the field. The fact that all it took was reading a couple articles, and we're like, "Wait, this sounds really bad." But mm. yeah, it seemed as though the FT was probably the only paper that was sort of digging into this. And I mean, it folded pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It didn't last long, did it? No. If yeah. you look at the timeline, mm. you know, Greensill was not around for that long. No, no. Well, Actually, yeah. Once, once sort of Credit Suisse stopped buying uh, what they were selling. Well, we, well, I think the thing that the thing that did shock us that we only found out later was that. Um, they had been uh, doing supply chain financing against notional future revenue streams. Yes. So people, they were allowing companies to basically write like future invoices that they would yeah, notionally that, send yeah, and yeah. basically take on debt against. Yeah, that, that's, not, that's not trade finance. Uh, that, that is just, that's junk. Mm. 
I mean, that's junk. If you seriously, as a company, you're going to go to somebody and say, "What is your what is your revenue going to be for 2019?" Uh, well, I think my revenue is going to be uh, 38 million dollars. Uh, okay, we'd like to lend you 70 percent of that. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> that's just a flat. I mean, I don't understand that. Yeah. That, that, that. That's quite frankly, that's ridiculous. And he deserves everything he gets. Yeah, I mean, we uh, we saw it coming and we're like, well, surely this is going to end much like so many of SoftBank's other investments. And it turned out to be exactly... Mm. Like SoftBank is basically a Saudi money losing machine at this point. And uh, mm. it makes great content for us to report on on the show. Japanese, like, right? Oh, yeah, they're, yeah. And I remember but all so, the money is mostly Saudi, I think. So yeah. they're like... Oh, the Jap- uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The Jap- Japanese, if I remember correctly... They at one point owned one of the major telephone, like mobile phone providers in Japan. Because I remember visiting my brother there and seeing ads for SoftBank phones. Yeah. But I'm but pretty that's sure. basically the only normal business they've yeah. ever owned. It's I'm pretty really sure strange. that um, they got a lot of money from Gulf countries to invest. And that's the money they've been dumping into, you know, like the various things we've talked about on the show. Mm. And it's just, yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's um, you know, I think, I think, black, I think black boxes now are, are, are not very fashionable. Mm. I think people are pulling back from investing in black boxes. I'm not saying SoftBank's a black box, but effectively it is. If the Arabs have stuck a load of money in SoftBank, not knowing that so- where SoftBank's going to invest that money, yeah. it's a black box. I mean, mm. it is. You're just investing on what? On the reputation and the name of SoftBank, yeah. which, as far as I know, hasn't really got much of a reputation. No. They mm. certainly don't make much money. It's got yeah. a reputation for investing in some fucking insane Same companies. companies. Yeah. It's, got, yeah. it's got a great it's reputation. It's got a reputation on this show, let me tell you that. It's got a fantastic yeah. reputation for investing in a lot of old shite. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, I don't know if you've got um, anything else you wanted to well, ask. I, why I did want to close out on, because uh, I think we, we agreed that we were going to get a Lahore kebab house uh, oh, you after beauty. this. Because, but I wanted I wanted Matt for you to talk about your Lahore your own Lahore kebab house days because it's a storied Indian restaurant on this show. We talk about Lahore kebab house a lot. So the fact that well, you had also been a customer of the Lahore kebab house, I think, was I was uh, when I used to work for Marshalls. It was a, it was a weekly or bi weekly thing that mm. we would get uh, a vindaloo, yeah, a beef vindaloo, mm. and a vegetable rice from the Lahore kebab house. Typically on a Friday, because typically we've been out on a Thursday, so we'd have it for lunch on a Friday. Yeah. So the order would typically be Vindaloo, 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 and then the last guy, it was called Marble, because he was as sharp as a fucking marble. <laughs> <laughs> he would order a korma, got always. <laughs> so that was the st- he, he always got asked last, and it was, I'll have a korma. Oh, for f- fuck's sake, Marble. <laughs> he's, done, he's done it again. Easy to remember that that particular order. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's quite funny because uh, I actually do quite often get the the Hawker Bab House Korma because he does, it is very yeah. good. Yeah. It is a very <laughs> good Korma. <laughs> Not always. Oh, I'm an adventurous man when it comes to curry, but sometimes. Yeah. It's, oh, a, good, it's a solid though. Korma. Yeah. It's yeah. a little bit of an embarrassment, mate. I've got to tell you that. So that. <laughs> Don't please. I'd, I'd rather you hadn't brought that one up. <laughs> Uh, you are my younger brother and I love you dearly but for Christ's sake son let's uh, knock it on the with the fucking Kormas <laughs> holy um, shit so I suppose at that, at that juncture that insight into the Edwards family dynamic it remains us only to thank Matt very much for coming on it's been an absolute pleasure I hope I, I hope I gleaned some information and gave you a bit of a chuckle um, yeah. we can always do a round two 
Oh, absolutely. Good. The next, the next financial crisis, we'll have you back. But on. no more talk about the Stratford, all right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that in the annals of history, boys. <laughs> it's a respectable business. <laughs> it's a respectable <laughs> business. This, this episode brought to you by the Stratford Sauna, <laughs> um, a respectable uh, health uh, spa where you can, you can be subject to many treatments. Uh, yeah. Not the Golden Dawn. It, it, it was, it was lovely. It was lovely. There was another one actually in Stratford as well called the Aqua Sauna. Oh. Yeah, there were two. Mm. I think either end of the high road, I think it was. The Aqua was uh, slightly more upmarket. Oh, okay. Well, next time listeners are in Stratford, yeah. um, do check those. Do uh, it's still, it's, I think it's still there. Oh, right. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, I haven't been to Stratford for a number of years. <laughs> not even oh, under the guise of seeing an Olympic event when the Olympics wasn't even on. No, no not right. me. No. no, absolutely not. And so that's why uh, that's why we'll, it will just be Lahore Kebab House this evening. Maybe Lahore the Stratford Sauna yeah. on, <laughs> on a subsequent appearance. Restrained, yeah. <laughs> Next Is time that? we're um, in- entertaining some trash future clients, uh, maybe. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much yeah, for being a Patreon subscriber, and uh, we will see you soon. <laughs>